Almighty God, we come to you this morning, preacher and people alike, totally dependent, without strength or ability in ourselves to grasp the truth of your word. Lord, we don't have the ability to apply it in our lives. That alone is the work of your grace through the Holy Spirit. Lord, please fill me now with the Spirit of God, grace upon grace, that I might tenderly proclaim the gospel, Lord. I pray for a tender heart for your people. I pray for clarity. I pray for understanding for all of us as we drink now from the fountain of the Word of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Those are some cheerful readings from the Bible this morning. Uh, this morning, I, wanted, I want our time in God's Word to do three things. I want it, first of all, I want it to bring clarity. This is my goal personally. I want it to bring clarity. I think we need to hear a word of correction. And then, and most of all, I want the emphasis to fall on the proclamation of good news. Now, you need to know that this summer we are in a sermon series on Christian anthropology. Now, that doesn't sound exciting to many of us. But in other words, we're answering the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say that it means to be a human being? What is the story that we are believing about what it means to be a human being? Now, some people, to, that, to some people, that sounds kind of esoteric, kind of elevated. You know, we came here to hear the Bible preached and to talk about Jesus. We didn't come to take a college course, thank you very much. But friends, the whole reason that we are talking about this is because all of the issues that are roiling our culture right now, the things that are igniting protests and divisions and the seething animosity in our society that's devouring our social order are all ultimately about what it means to be a human being. Issues of the value of human life. What does race mean? Of gender, of sexuality, or how we treat the stranger are inescapably at rock bottom issues about what it means to be a human person. Every one of those is a question question of anthropology. We have two stories that dominate in our culture right now. There are, other, there, are, there are many sub-stories, but the main two stories that dominate our culture about what it means to be a human being is the secular culture, the secular story, which is essentially atheistic, and the Christian narrative, or in some cases we have the Judeo-Christian narrative that tells a different narrative. And these two are in tension with one another. You see, for Christians, we can't talk about hum who human beings are. We can't talk about who human beings are without talking about who God is. Right at the beginning of the biblical story of humanity, here's what we hear. Then God said, this is Genesis 1.26, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if humanity, listen, if humanity is created in the image of God, right, then theology, what we say is true about God, and anthropology, what we say is true about being a human being, are two indivisible intertwined topics. Not everybody has that in their narrative. We are created in the image of God. That directly links anthropology and theology. We cannot escape talking about who God is without talking about who human beings are. And God ups that 
ante, ups the ante of his intertwined relationship with humanity when God literally takes on human flesh, literally becomes a human being, a man in Jesus Christ. We call this the incarnation, and it's clearly taught in Scripture. Since Jesus, therefore, listen, since Jesus is truly God, we believe that Jesus is God. And since He reveals what it means to be God. If He's truly God, if you see Jesus, Jesus says in, in John's Gospel, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's right. We call, but also because He is truly human, Jesus is likewise the fullest revelation of what it means to be a human being. He is perfect God and perfect human. As the God-man, Jesus reveals that God's purpose for His human creation is that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, united to God in Christ, and fully drawn and completely enter into the life of God, into the ecstatic joy, into the love, into the fullness, all that is of God. He wants to pull us into the life of the Holy Trinity. That's God's ultimate purpose for us. God's purpose was to exalt, this is so important because a lot of people think that we have a low view of what it means to be a person. But God's ultimate purpose was to exalt and glorify his human creation because God himself is glorified in this. St. Irenaeus says it well, the glory of God is the human fully alive. The glory of God is the human fully alive. Why is that? Because God's image is stamped on us, and we live in our, when we live into our full humanity, God receives glory because His image is revealed on the earth. But, but, Houston, we have a problem. When we look at our lives and when we look at the world around us, we see that we do not, in our natural state, by our natural human condition, reflect the glory of God in our lives. In fact, just the opposite seems to be the case. It is easy to point out the hellish inhumanity of human to human. We see it right now in Nigeria, in Nigeria as Islamic Fulani herdsmen are committing genocide against the Christians in the Joss area of Nigeria. In fact, our archbishop there, Archbishop Kwasi, uh, he, his home, and he has been attacked three times. Um, the first time they stole all his cattle. The second time they came back to kill him. Uh, his uh, neighbor tried to intervene when uh, they were stealing the cattle and they were attacking his home, and they shot his neighbor dead. The third time they came back to kill the bishop, he still wasn't there, and so they raped his wife. And that just happened two weeks ago during, uh, during Gafcon, while he was at Gafcon. We see it almost daily in the daily revelation of widespread sexual assault and harassment and exploitation right here in our own culture, right here in our own city. And more and more, I've been allowed to see how major corporations and big businesses commit theft and the oppression of the little guy with impunity. I have examples, and I could tell you about those. I'm not going to take the time to do it, but it's standard operating procedure in many companies. And this problem that I'm describing is what we call original sin. In other words, the rebellion of Adam and Eve against the will of God that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, because of that rebellion, all of us are born into this world because of what Adam and Eve did, 
What they started, all of us are born into this world already guilty of sin and infected by the power of sin. I need to repeat that because it's astonishing. We are born into this world guilty of sin and already infected by the power of sin. Now, we need to define our terms here. When we talk about original sin, we're not talking about discrete acts of wickedness or of particular moments when we break the commandments of God. Those are sins, plural, sins. They are the symptoms of the central human flaw, which is the power of sin that dominates us so that we always are prone to put ourselves in the place of God. Humans always want to love supremely that which is not ultimate. We want to love supremely that which is not ultimate. It can be pleasure or money or security or family or more and more political ideology. We make these finite things ultimate things and put them in the place of God. That's the power of sin. And as a result, sin ruptures the wholeness, the shalom, the peace that God intended for human existence and for all of his creation, all of the physical degradation that we see in the world around us, in the environment itself is the result of this breach of the relationship between humanity and God and what we call original sin. The late Reformed theologian, and let the record now show that I will be quoting uh, R.C. Sproul. It happened here. <laughs> Write it down. All you Reformed people just had their hearts strangely warmed. R.C. Sproul sums it up. Our whole humanness, our whole humanness has been affected by sin. Sin is not something that is on a tangent to who we are, but the problem of sinfulness penetrates to every aspect of our humanness. It affects our bodies. It affects our minds. We call that the noetic problem of sin. It affects our wills. It affects our affections. Every part of our humanity, man's fall was not just a slight stumble, but the influence of sin that came into the world with the fall of Adam and Eve affected radically every part of our being. And so let me balance R.C. Sproul with a little John Wesley. Wesley said this, Is man by nature filled with all manner of evil? Is he void of all good? Is he wholly fallen? Is his soul totally corrupted? Or to come back to the text, is every imagination of the thoughts of his heart only evil continually? Allow this and you are so far a Christian. Deny it and you are but a heathen still. You see, the, this doctrine of original sin is, in, is rooted, deeply rooted in the biblical witness. Prior to the flood, in Genesis chapter 6, we actually read the verse that Wesley was referring to in that, that passage of his sermons I just read to you, where the condition of humanity is stated as follows. This is Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And we think, well, I'm so glad we're over that now. I'm so glad that's not the case. But brothers and sisters, we just read today in Romans chapter 3 that this wasn't merely a problem in the dim, misty recesses of the prehistoric past, but it is the human condition right now. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
as it is written, none is righteous. How many, how many people are in that set? Zero, that's right. None is righteous, no, not one. Say, I can do new math. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Jesus himself in the gospel passage identifies where this power of sin resides and from whence it erupts. Our problem is not out there. If we could just get society straightened out, all of us people would be so good. We would, it would just be sweetness and light every day. Because I, I can't be the problem. The problem is out there with all you people who disagree with me. Jesus says, no, it's not out there. It's inside of us. Mark chapter 7, verse 20. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From, for from within, out of the heart of humans, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within, and they defile a person. So the Bible clearly teaches that all of us come into this world already predisposed to rebel against God and to serve ourselves in destructive ways that harm us, that harm our neighbors, and that destroy God's good creation. None of us, therefore, none of us are just, well, you know, he's basically a good person. He's none of us are naturally good people. If you think we are, you don't believe this scripture that I just read. We don't have a good heart. Oh, he's got a good heart. We usually say somebody has a good heart when? Right after they've done something horrible. But you know, he's got a good heart. He did run over all those people, but he's got a good heart. The scripture teaches in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. So don't trust your heart. Don't go with your heart. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And for my point of evidence to support this assertion, I simply submit the last 6,000 years of recorded human history right up to five minutes ago. I rest my case. Now that was the clarity bit. But I want you to understand why this doctrine is critical to our understanding of the human condition and why, paradoxically, it's really why when we hear the bad news about our sinfulness, it's actually good news. But to get there, we have to have a moment of correction. We need a little course correction. First of all, we need to recognize this. It is likely that if we bore down to our most in, inmost thoughts, most of us in this room right now do not believe the doctrine of original sin. Or if you want to use, you know, the tea and tulip, total depravity. Here's how you can tell that you do not accept this point of anthropology, Christian anthropology. If you justify, listen carefully, if you justify your own disordered desires and affections or behaviors, in other words, if Ben Sharp justifies his own disordered desires, affections, and behaviors, or what is probably even more likely, if we justify the desires, disordered desires, disordered affections, and sinful behaviors of others, particularly the ones we love, by saying, well, God made them that way, and God don't make no junk. God made me that way, and God don't make no junk. You are at that moment denying the doctrine of original sin. 
In other words, brothers and sisters, when it comes to sin, we are all born that way. We are all born that way. The way we come into this world, the way that we are born, is not the way God intended us to be. The power of sin that began with our first parents warps us so that we naturally want to do what is contrary to God's intentional for his what is contrary to God's original intention for his human creation. We naturally want to do what is contrary to God's original good intention for his human creation. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from God's grace in the Holy Spirit, our listen, our earnest apart from Christ our earnestly and sincerely felt, apparently natural desires are wrong. Wow. Tim Keller writes, human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when human beings turned from God, the entire warp and woof of the world unraveled. Disease. Well, God made me with this way with a genetic disorder. And God don't make no junk. No, that is not what we believe. Keller writes, disease, genetic disorders, famine, natural disasters, aging, and death itself are as much the result of sin as are oppression, war, crime, and violence. We have lost God's shalom physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, culturally. Things now fall The other way we can tell we do not accept this biblical teaching is that most people who claim to be followers of Jesus believe that in our natural selves, in our natural state, that we have, ready, we believe that we have free will and that it is in our power to choose not to sin. We believe deep down, and we'll tell people this, most of us in this room probably fit into this category. We believe that in our natural state we have free will and that it is in our power to choose not to sin. This, in fact, was the teaching of a British monk named Pelagius. He was an arch-heretic, arch-heretic, around the year, uh, archangels and arch-heretics. Okay, I got it right. Around the year 400 A.D., he was embroiled with a dispute on this point with St. Augustine of Hippo in which... Pelagius maintained that we have free will if we really try hard enough not to sin. Your problem with sin is because you're just not trying hard enough. You need more duct tape and a bigger hammer. (laughs) Look it up, so what it says about Pelagianism. I read it on Wikipedia. It's true. But the problem with Pelagius' teaching, Pelagianism, the try-harder gospel is that if you do manage to convince yourself that you're doing a pretty good job, it leads to what? Self-righteousness and judging other people. I got my mess together. Why can't you get your mess together? I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy. It leads to self-righteousness. You have to set the standard pretty low, by the way, but some people manage to get there. If you do feel like you're meeting your standard, then it results in self Righteousness, And we just love that quality in people, don't we? No. But if most likely you realize the truth that you can never meet the standard, the result of this Pelagian 
worldview, this Pelagian heresy, is actually despair and defeat. I'll never be able to do it. I can't do it. Yet we are deeply attracted to this kind of thinking that we can choose or not to choose because it is so American. We believe that personal autonomy, our ability to choose for myself and not to have anyone else's will imposed on me, that is my natural state, that is my natural right. American individualism teaches that we can do anything we want to do and be anything we want to be if we just, what, try hard enough or take the right drugs or have the right surgery. We believe that we create our own destiny. And every one of these cherished American ideas is demonstrably false. You don't get to choose your parents. You are not somewhere proud of your birth with a catalog picking parents out. You didn't choose where to be born. You did not choose your ethnicity. You did not choose how smart you could be or how artistic or how much athletic potential you will have. And most important of all, you can never decide whether or not you will die. You don't get a choice. You might hasten it or prolong it, but you are going to die. You don't get to choose. And yet, we still believe that we have the power to be good people if we want to and if we try hard enough. If we want to, we can choose to love God. We can choose to follow God. We can choose to love our neighbors. But the Bible teaches that in our natural sinful state, we cannot do any of those things. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. St. Paul writes, And you were dead, dead, in, in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people have how much power to affect their condition? None. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. We are powerless to change our state. Paul goes on to say, we all were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of humanity. In other words, by nature, we are under the wrath and judgment of God. And then Paul says again in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, it seems profoundly unfair to most of us that someone's choice back in prehistory should determine my destiny today. But, beloved, that is just the way things are. That's the way reality is. Your own mom and dad's choices determined your destiny to a great degree right now as did every generation before them. As Bill Bryson writes in A Short History of Nearly Everything, it's a great book, if your two parents hadn't bonded just when they did, possibly to the nanosecond, you wouldn't be here. And if their parents hadn't bonded in a precisely timely manner, you wouldn't be here either. In other words, if your parents don't have children, you won't either. Work it out. <laughs> and if their parents hadn't done likewise, and their parents before them, and so on, obviously and indefinitely, you wouldn't be here. It doesn't seem fair, but it's the way reality is. 
Now, now, now that we've had that little course correction, I can tell you why the doctrine of original sin, why this truth about what it means to be human is paradoxically, in fact, really good news. Here is the good news. The sin infection in our nature means that we are utterly powerless to save ourselves. We are utterly powerless to save ourselves. We are powerless to do the good and to resist evil. How in the world could that be good news? Well, Albert Outler was teaching about original sin in a course at Perkins School of Theology long ago at Southern Methodist University when a lanky West Texan approached him after the class to object to this particular point of theology. Outler says we talked about it a while, and finally he gave vent to a real outcry from his heart. Well, he said, if we don't have the power to decide to sin or, the, or to decide not to sin, then all I've got to say is God help us. Outler said he had inadvertently stumbled into orthodoxy. <laughs> God help us indeed. You see, that's why we call Jesus Savior and not advisor. We don't need advice. We need somebody to come and get our dead, sorry rear ends and pull us out of Sheol and put life and the Holy Spirit into us and give us the power to live a godly life. We can't do it. Dead people can't fix themselves. I love that icon of the, of the resurrection. It's the, the Anastasis icon. It's actually Christ descent into hell. And he's, got, he's standing there in glory with what's called the mandala around him. It's like a big giant halo and all powerful and, and risen. And he's got, he's got Adam by one hand and Eve by another hand. And they're halfway in and out of their grave. And he's yanking them out of the grave because they were dead. And they needed a savior and not somebody to tell them, hey, stop being so dead. You need to try harder. What is all this decomposition stuff? Get your act together. You and I are dead. And God's goodness has shown that he loved us so much. He loved us poor old dead people that he came and got us. We have a shepherd that sought for lost sheep. We didn't want to get found. That's the thing about lost sheep. They don't know they're lost and they're not interested in getting found. We've got a great Pyrenees uh, by grandchild standards, I guess, our grand dog standards. He's not my great Pyrenees. He's just at my house. <laughs> he's not a sheep, but he's supposed to be a sheepdog. But I can tell you this. If I let him out of the gate, he is gone. And he's happy to be lost. You know, I, I need to put a, some sort of radar detector on him or something to make him more visible. And that's exactly how we are. The gate was open and we're gone and happy to be lost. We don't need an advisor. We need a savior. The gospel is not advice to help bad people become good. It is the proclamation, God's declaration, that God has come to make dead people, people who are slaves by nature to sin, alive and free and fully human. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and following, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were still rebel sinners, Christ died for us. God's great love. God initiates and affects the remedy for human sin, and that is the core of the gospel. God does not love and accept us because of our good performance or because we are virtuous, because we haven't and we aren't. God loves and accepts us because of Jesus, full stop, period, no addition. You cannot clean yourself up enough or straighten yourself out enough to get right with God. He does that for you through the power of Jesus' death on the cross and his rising from the dead on the third day. Here is the gospel. You are a worse person than you ever imagined, but God's love and desire for you is greater than you ever imagined. His love for you is greater than you could ever imagine. And the only way to describe it is just say, look at the cross. God's great love is shown that though we were totally unlovable rebels, God still loves and saves us. That means we don't have to get our acts together before we come to God, and as a matter of fact, we still don't have our acts together after we've come to God in Christ. That is the lifelong process of sanctification. And I don't know about, I don't know about you, but I am not there yet. When I was a Methodist, one of, Method, uh, one of John Wesley's questions for his, uh, for his preachers was, uh, do, you expect to be full, do you expect to be made perfect in this life? talking about complete sanctification. And all of us had to lie and say, yeah. Little by little, day by day, and it's the work of God. Alan Jacob writes that, strangely, the Christian emphasis on the universal depravity of human nature, seen by so many as an insult to human dignity, is curiously liberating. I once heard a preacher encourage his listeners to begin a prayer with the following words, Lord, I am the failure that you always knew I would be. The biblical emphasis on original sin and the consequent absolute dependence of every one of us on the grace of God gives hope to the waverer, the backslider, the slacker, the putz, the schlemiel, Alan Jacobs, I don't know what a schlemiel is. <laughs> we are all in the same boat as Mr. Holier Than Thou over there. Saved only, saved only by grace. Only by grace. Only by grace. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.